0: You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Olafemi Taiwo, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He has written and published in both academic and popular venues on issues of racial capitalism, climate justice, and the legacy of colonialism in our political thinking and practices. He is the author of Elite Capture, forthcoming with Haymarket Books and Reconsidering Reparations, published by Oxford University Press in early 2022, in which we are discussing today. Femi, welcome. How are you?
1: Thanks for having me. I'm good.
0: Well, I'm really glad you made the time to get together and talk a bit about your book. Um which I absolutely loved. I I was excited to read it when I saw it was coming out and, uh, I sat and read it in a day. It just, I have to say, in addition to being extremely interesting, it's really engagingly written, um, and is a fantastic blend of a really philosophical voice. Obviously that's, that's your orientation towards the, the questions and the problems, but also I think written, um, with a lot of urgency and clarity and and really and, uh, fantastic prose, which I can't say is always true about philosophy books. <laughs> so.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, I think uh, you know the fact that you do public writing uh, definitely uh, shows up in this uh, in all good ways. Well, I wanted to start, uh, I, you know, of course, I have some questions about some of the particular concerns that you have in the book and, and how you think about them and why. But I want to start really by asking you to narrate your way, uh, if you would, into the project, right? The kind of intellectual concerns you had, the kinds of senses of urgency and passion that you have, because, of course, books are all absorbing when it's time to write one. You put all of yourself into it, all of your resources and as I always say, a hefty dose of self worth is at stake. So something drives us into projects, right? right. Um, what is it about this? Why this project, and why now?
1: So when I started working on this years ago, I was I was a grad student. I was organizing, and you know, in the activist world, and all of that. So there was a track of work and attention that was on racial justice from a kind of organizer's perspective, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was an intellectual track. I was studying philosophy and thinking about these abstract questions about justice and racial justice and ideal social structures and all those sorts of things. In particular, one thing I was studying a lot at the time was history. I was trying to put all of these things in historical context, all of the questions about what good policy is, what good social structures would be like, and how we ended up with these bad ones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And from that perspective, reparations just kind of sat at the intersection of a lot of those things, right? It's it's Uh an important racial justice cause from an activist perspective. It deals directly with the history um, that has created today's racial justice problems. So it allowed me to kind of combine a lot of energies that were otherwise separate in my life, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, I you know the the that sort of wide engagement with intellectual life, with thoughtful life, you know, cross history and and philosophy and activism, I think, really shows up in the book. And I want to you know I want to maybe follow that with uh, a question about the introduction, which probably was my favorite part of the book. I tend to always love introductions. I don't know what it is, you know they. <laughs> You know good ones give you a little shorthand of of what's to come but also what i liked about yours is you really do narrate us into the project in incredibly urgent and important ways and you make this interesting remark that i wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about you say that uh how, when we think about, res- or when we are in the mode of responding to other people's mistakes, to others' mistakes, it leads us to forget our own questions and demands. And obviously, this—I mean, it's in the introduction, so it's a way of orienting us toward the book. But that—that that for me was such an important way of thinking about, you know, the way reactivity really does form so many of the ways we think about racial justice questions and that shift right to you know our questions and demands rather than their mistakes yeah i just wanted to hear what hear you talk about what you mean by this and why you think this is such an important way
1: to frame the body of the text so maybe I'll, i'll i'll start with what i mean by it but just there's a kind of practical background of this point and an intellectual background of this point. So there's, Mm -hmm. so the intellectual thing is there's been this long debate in philosophy about ideal theory about abstracting away from history and whether or not that's a good idea or what versions of that might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong and that has gone wrong with particular ways of using abstraction, you know, worming your way out of, you know, dealing with the world around you. But one of the things that's powerful about it is you get to really just focus on, well, what's your question? What do you, really, what do you think justice is? Not Mm -hmm. what do you think justice is in response to this very specific form of injustice? But Uh no, from total perspective, what do you think justice is? It's the kind of approach that lets you think about that. And that's not something that I always saw the value of, you know, especially when I was younger, but it was actually things in, it was, it was stuff in activist spaces that made me realize, that made me rethink it, I guess. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of what struck me as kind of unfair, sometimes unprincipled decisions and positions that people took, which to my eyes were less about what the positions they were taking were and more about, you know, winning kind of factional battles between, you know, um, competing visions of what this particular organizing space should be or reacting to the things that the villains of outside of the organizing space were doing. And, And, you know, I just saw, it seemed to me like, and not just other people, myself too, Right. This is an, mm-hmm. also an element of self-criticism. But I myself found I found myself, um, you know, dismissing things because they were things that the other the other side said Uh uh-huh. um, or taking up questions because they were things, you know, because of the social stakes of that question in a particular context. hmm. But, but not really thinking about, well, no, what really is important? you know, what are our values? What would abolition be of yeah. prisons or police? What would racial justice on a global scale or on a local scale really be? Um, and I found myself losing sight of those questions and in spaces where there' was something of a mission drift around those. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I found that Toni Morrison speech, <laughs> and in it, um, that I referenced in the introduction, mm-hmm. and it really, you know, it really crystallized some things that I'd been trying to think through.
0: Yeah, and I think you know one of the things that I really love about the book, and I think it's part of why, um, you know, it was it was a book that I wanted to keep reading and didn't need breaks from. For a lack of a better way of putting it, was that you actually practice that in your own like kind of scholarship, right? That this is not a book that is spending, you know, eight pages recounting every single debate about reparations on this particular point, and then here's three pages on your point, right? And instead, you make the question of reparations your own. And I, I have to say, like, as a reader, it was totally fascinating to watch myself talking to the book Mm -hmm. not because you know in ways that i usually don't because you know that that rehearsing of scholarship i mean it's it's like a convention at this point um that i think so many of us feel compelled to do but you're practicing that you know you're saying you're sort of drawing this wisdom from from activist circles i think it's like a little bit of wisdom about the way we write books right that you you have your questions and demands in the book and you make those not just the center of the book, but also the guiding structure of the book you know and and it's it's a it's a very different kind of text, I think for that reason
1: yeah thanks i i I'm interested to see what people make of that i'm not I'm not sure myself, but I definitely also feel the pull of that convention you were talking about, right? You know, we have to demonstrate mastery of what our field thinks is everything that's been said on an issue before we can say anything. And, and one of the things that inspired my departure from that was understanding how, understanding how small our fields are compared to the size of human knowledge and so on and so forth right from from a disciplinary norms perspective you know what i should have done like you were saying is figure out every person in a department of academic philosophy who (laughs) has written a paper where reparations appears in the abstract (laughs) (laughs) and then you know gone through and um, done all that. And I, I don't think that's a necessarily a useless exercise. Um, in fact, there is a more academic paper version of the book that more or less kind of does that, mm-hmm. you know? So, so it's, it, we should pay attention to what our colleagues have said, of course, but, you know, but there's something particularly in the case of reparations, in the case of, you know, the long history of, of slavery, colonialism, and attempts to respond to those and attempts to struggle for reparatory justice in response to those. There's something particularly absurd about thinking that the way to do that is by figuring out what people in academic philosophy departments have said. You know, when through much of that history, (laughs) there was explicit racial... (laughs) Explicit racial divides on who could be in those departments and participated those conversations right that's that just isn't where you're going to find the contours of the history of responses to those questions mm-hmm. and you know it it's not where you're going to find the most or best thinking about the various dimensions of the problem so by the by the nature of the thing i was discussing you know, I just felt I had to go outside of the discipline anyway. Uh So I figured while I was going outside of the discipline to get all this knowledge anyway, it's, it's a position to question a bunch of the norms about how we write beyond just who am I responding to in a literature review?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we all read. And so that processing happens at some level and, you know, one of the, one of the, You know, one of the things, one of the real virtues of the book, as you know, as I said, I think you just you let the the questions and demands be your own, but also it's clearly addressing all of the major trends and talking about reparations. But the book also has, you know, as as you know, you and I are are philosophy PhDs, and you know, one of the ways it's not a philosophy book, right? And this is something I really was. really intrigued by i really loved but intrigued in that i i had i wanted to ask you about is the fact that you get us into the question of reparations through a conversation or through a characterization of of world history and it's it moves quickly but it has real substance right and and it has dates and names and trends and makes you know uh you know, arguments for connections, whether they're causal or, you know, tight sort of associative. But you do tell, a, a, you know, you you tell and call it a world history. And so one of the things I thought was uh, what I loved about the history is that it did blend, you know, you know, obviously anti-Black racism was at the, which is at the heart of, of talking about reparations and slavery. Uh, but you also talked about conquests. Global empire, both in its inception and in its long shadow in which we currently live, and also, um, I think one of the most important elements is is a hefty dose of Marxist accounts or characterizations of accumulation. Mm-hmm. Now, why I have sort of two questions about that. You know, what made you? what motivated you to make that decision to to foreground the conversation so heavily with this account of world history and also why world history rather than national history and i asked that question about why world history rather than national history because as you know one of the cent- central questions in in reparations conversations is how to link the you know the nation that pays to the to the the descendants of those who suffered in a, in this particular way that's being addressed through reparations. So I think like our intuition is to go my intuition is to go to national history but you go to world history. So why frame the book that way and why that shift away from national to global? So I
1: think they I think both of these questions have if not exactly the same answer, you know, there's a cluster of motivations that Go towards both of these. Um, One thing that I've written about elsewhere in more academic, um, in an academic journal, is just um, the state centricity or the national centricity, we could say, of, of, of how some political philosophy and political theory is done. And, you know, beyond the question of whether or not that way of looking at things is. Um, like, instrumentally adequate, whether or not it's going to be useful in a practical sense for stuff uh-huh. that we're trying to get done in the future. I think it's just, I think it's just wrong, right? It's <laughs> its wrong, you know, to the extent that it involves descriptions of what the world is like, of what individual nations are like. its It's, you're just, you're just committed to if not a fictional account of history, a very narrow account of history. Uh-huh. Right. Um, one thing, one example that I use in the book, I'm talking about the founding of Georgetown and mm-hmm. um, thus a material history of how my bills get paid, how the book get, got made in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And telling that story involved... Multiple oceans involved four continents at a minimum, um, because those were the networks of trade and politics that were involved. It's just, it's just uh-huh. true. I think it's a consequence of having this, um, as he put it, like a, a Marxist um, approach to the relevant accumulations. Mm-hmm. You know th- th- the. Capital has never respected the borders that we pretend are so politically decisive, that there are are containers for political realities. They just aren't. Um, When people were brought over, when enslaved Africans were brought over here to work in 1619, they were brought to British colonies that were started by a joint stock company. Um, They were bought from the African continent they were being shipped to New Spain, to a Spanish colony, by Dutch pirates, right? We were, we're, uh-huh. we're crossing imperial boundaries, we're crossing oceans, you know, mm-hmm. all these things are part and parcel of the story. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we confuse tractability assumptions, like the things that we assume about the world to make it cognizable to make to make our questions to make particular questions we might ask answerable you know we try to read those back into the actual structure of the world rather than the structure of you know particular narrow questions that we might ask and and that's a mistake Mm
0: -hmm. yeah no that's that's interesting i mean i I was totally drawn in by that and and like I said, you know, at first, you know, I don't know what the word is cuz it sounds pejorative, but like a little disoriented. I was like, "Wait, oh, we're, this is going to do a world history." But, you know, you 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 manage all of those this sort of, you know, history of accumulation, you know, empire in a broad sense, multi-continent, multi, you know, imperial forces and so forth. Um really manage it it really well, that's not easy work to do. I mean, it's like, it's a, one of my grad school professors um, used to do So it was, I remember taking a Kant seminar with him my first year and he, you know, and trying to give a background in some reference Kant was making to, you know, a figure, you know, Christian Wolf or something. And he would say, you know, I'm going to give you like a rock and roll history of this figure, meaning like three minutes or less, the sort of classic, but you know that's a real art form as a scholar to actually write that out, and this this the way you were able to make such effective work out of out of this out of uh, a characterization of global history of accumulation and unjust racial injustice is you know. I mean, it sets a pretty high bar for those of us who might want to do similar stuff. So, you know, I thank you for it in the book, but for the rest of us, it'll be
1: like, you know, we gotta, we gotta
0: make sure we have some focus.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the reason I'm able to do it is is really, you know, it's not a testament. I mean, I had to read all this stuff, but it's really a testament to, I think... In particular, historians, um, some cultural studies people, some sociologists, some people who are tough to categorize. But, but there's been decades of work that's been attempting to do just this, right? Which, it, uh, which is tell a coherent story about these systems that got built over and across the neat little country categories that we usually use to think about history yeah and a a big forerunner to this is of course eric williams who Mm -hmm. i talk about at length in the book Um, but having that to draw on is the reason why it was even possible to write that chapter um and so you know that's just to agree with what you're saying it's it's really hard but at the same time thankfully we're not starting from scratch, right? We have a lot of these, you know, we have the Eric Williams's and the Lisa Lowe's and the Cedric Robinson's, um, you know, all this this stuff, the Samira means, you know, all this material that we can just kind of piggyback off of. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, well, If you could, if, you know, if if one of the effects of the book is to get people to pick up Eric Williams, that would be a a fantastic effect. I mean, he's such an important, such an important writer and thinker. And um, even in in, uh, most Caribbean studies, which is much, much more my field, um, you know, he's not at the center as much as I think he probably should be. So Mm. I'm glad to hear, hear his name said here and uh, see it in the book. Yeah. So one of the things that stood out for me, just you know, I think about, especially because I read it, you know, and you know, in a, in a long day of reading, one of the things that stuck out for me, and these are the things I think you detect when you when you read in, in a concentrated way, um, was a shift in the the structure and exposition of the book when you turn. To talking about distributive justice. I think it's one of the most exciting part of the books. Obviously, this is the centerpiece of any political philosophy, right? How to think about distributive justice. So your writing's different, and the stakes really, for me, seem to hit their peak in this discussion, right? That, that you, you, reconsidering reparations really does, um, I don't know, it becomes, Critical and urgent in in a different kind of way. So I want to hear you talk a little bit about you know what what's important about this notion of distributive justice, and in particular, there was this phrase that that you sort of you use, but you come to in the sense of like it builds to this moment where you say you you are talk you want to talk about, and this is your phrase: the world making perspective on justice, and that phrase world making, and that that as a perspective that ought to inform our sense of justice. So I want to ask about that phrase and also, you know, where you think, what, where you think distributive justice as a general problem and how it gets sharpened in this book, why it, why it is such a centerpiece in your
1: argument. So one thing that I've been driving at with distributive justice is We're thinking about processes, we're thinking about networks, and we're thinking about them at this huge scale, right? Centuries of history, it's literally a planetary scale account of politics. And at the same time, one of the things I'm trying to resist, actively resist, both in myself and in my kind of notional audience, is... The attempt to try to dematerialize the discussion, right? So racial justice is about, uh, the idea of kind of abstract moral rights yeah, or, you know, commitments to principles or things like that, which are detached from, you know, hard-nosed realist descriptions of what it is that our social systems are actually doing. Yeah. And so I liked the term distributive justice um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I think the notion of distribution of who gets what is just, you know, fundamentally, as I understand it, race is a distributive notion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It it is a distributive form of social domination. If you put it that way. Um, I really like Ruthie Gilmore's way of putting it, you know, it's, differential distribution of vulnerability to premature death. that's how mm-hmm. she puts it. Um, but differential distribution, right for, for yeah that's that's getting at something core about how race functions as a system of domination. And what else and the other thing that's nice about distribution, um, the idea of distributive justice is that if you make it historical, um The reparations connection kind of falls out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the guiding metaphor that gets used several times in the book is the idea of a distribution system like an aqueduct. Mm-hmm. It's channeling social advantages to certain places and people and channeling social disadvantages, to certain places and people. And there you have the whole thing. You have the distribution, the who gets what question. You have the systemic question. It's a literal structure that we're imagining. Mm -hmm. Um, And you get the processual element. It's a flow of things, you know, that if we're imagining water, it starts over here and it ends up over there by running through this aqueduct. Um, And so it's just a uh, a nice way of communicating what i think the core commitments of the book are and and my core commitments are and once that's in place once you're thinking of it that way i think you're totally right to think of um, world making as a kind of result as a, as a as a as a result of thinking in this way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the term world-making from um, Adam Getachu, her book on world-making after empire, which is her Mm -hmm. description of anti-colonial politics, particularly in the decades following the second world war, because they too had this planetary constructive perspective. Um, But the perspective that comes out of world-making paired with this version of thinking about the world as a distribution system really is you know i think in fairly in literal ways it's a construction process mm-hmm. if what the world is is an aqueduct or aqueduct like then all of the things we're trying to explain in terms of principles or bigotry or You know, the wrong beliefs about humanity turn out to have this, you know, this much more literal structural explanation. I don't mean that the United States as a body has this abstract belief that black people are worse. I mean, it's literally built in the way that pipes are built to funnel disadvantage towards black people. And that's not something that you change with speeches or... Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that you change with hammers and anvils.
0: Yeah, and it's not something where you just move people closer to the existing water. You have to to move it,
1: right,
0: to yep. move those flows. Um, and I just really, I mean, world-making is, you know, I have a, you know, pet personal, you know, love of that phrase um, it's from a sort of cultural studies um, frame. But, you know, you really make it work so well you know, just as you articulated so well as a way of understanding that we're not talking about psychological states that need to be altered, right? But it's really about the way we make the world and what does it mean to, to make the world with this notion of justice in mind. Um, so, and remaking the world, I mean, one of the, you know, really the world is such a huge part of this because I think the... You know, no doubt the the most original contribution of the book. I mean, it's original contribution because it's it's a particular perspective. But the thing that really stands out, and I'm sure is grabbing uh, like everyone's attention. And I know you've you've written a, a, a bit in the Boston Review on this is the link between the question of reparations and the imperative to address climate change catastrophe. And so, I mean, your chap your chapter. I mean, it's it's really the 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 most impactful chapter, I think, um, as it should be. But and so the answer is there. But I, I wanted to ask you just to talk a little bit about that. You know, you know what drew you to this twist in that discourse, right? Towards climate change um, and linking it to reparations. Obviously, climate change is a catastrophe; <laughs> it's an existential concern. But you build it right into the question of reparations.
1: It all comes from the perspective we were just talking about. So if the world is, aqu- is like an aqueduct, right? If it's a literal system that funnels disadvantages and advantages in a particular way based on where, based on how that aqueduct has been built, then there are... I think a couple conclusions worth drawing from that. The first is that the setup of that system, the architecture of that system is, you know, literally in this case, the structural explanation for all this, all of the things that are downstream of our social system. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's going to include racial injustice. So for the very same reason that racial injustice is a world-making problem or a, a world-making goal, um, fixing racial injustice is a world-making goal. Um, it turns out to have something to do, it turns out to be the same project as fixing the climate crisis. It is the way that our system is literally constructed you know, these are just different descriptions of the aqueduct, is maybe Mm -hmm. one way to put it, right? We're describing different kinds of behaviors, different kinds of patterns of flow that this aqueduct has, but it's fundamentally the Mm -hmm. same thing that we're trying to alter. And I think even setting the aqueduct metaphor aside for a second, the more basic connection between the way that I think about reparations and the way that I think about climate justice and what connects them is just the fact that I've taken a forward looking, practical perspective on what reparations is. Mm -hmm. And if you were trying to do any old practical project, if you were trying to build a house, for instance, right. Mm -hmm. You would ask questions about the practical process of that, getting that done. Is the site that I've chosen for the house a good foundation for the house? Will it support the weight of the house? Mm -hmm. Uh, What kind of materials are compatible with having a good house with the kind of energy efficiency that we want, et cetera, et cetera. None of those questions are abstract questions about what the concept of a house is. They're concrete practical and political questions about the thing that I'm trying to accomplish. And so forgetting the metaphor of the aqueduct, forgetting the particular perspective on world history that I have, that I believe in, that I think is important. Mm -hmm. All you really need to ask yourself is, if you think of reparations as trying to accomplish something in the future, then you are viewing it as a practical project that has to overcome obstacles Mm -hmm. in order to get done right, that has to be built on a foundation of something in the way that a house is built on a foundation. And just ask yourself, based on what you know of the social system, based on what you know of who gets protected when things go wrong and who gets exploited when money is to be made, Uh is a future without climate justice and with sea level rise and with a three or four degree rise in global temperature, And with shocks to food supply chains and energy availability, is that a good or bad foundation for the racial justice that you want to achieve in the future? Straight up practical question, right? Uh I think the answer is clearly no. And I think once you see that the answer is no, then you see that the aspects from a purely practical perspective of building the kind of world where racial justice is even achievable are just going to require climate justice they are going to require that things don't go as badly in climate politics as they very well could. And frankly are going so far. Uh-huh. And that's enough. I think there are much deeper and maybe more intellectually interesting connections between climate justice and reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always lead with that one because i think it's the one that should match the kind of political culture that we want to build interesting so how how
0: then uh, you know just to ask what's maybe the obvious question um but i think always a hard one when you get to this really practical dimension right of of reparations. Which is how? Do, how in this moment of a turn to to climate justice, which I think is a is a great phrase for this, um, when you make this turn towards climate justice, how is it still reparations for a specific kind of harm? And I'm asking that because, of course, you know everybody benefits from climate change yeah. or from climate justice. So, I mean, either we die or we live. Right. Right. Just like, you know, when people propose something like a, you know, massive investment in the education system as a form of reparations, right, or a social welfare net boost as a form of reparations. Well, you know, everybody, regardless of their place in this aqueduct, right, where the water flows to or from, away from, everybody benefits. How is how is that then a question, uh, climate justice, a question that is, you know, intimately tied to... Uh, to the racial justice dimension of of reparations and not a sort of antechamber of we need to have a world to live in in order for our practical uh, reparations for slavery to actually matter because we'll still be alive in 100 years.
1: Right. Yeah, so part of the problem is that I, I think, I mean, I think this is a really good point and a really important point. And I think part of the plausibility of this point has to do with the fact that the horizon for climate injustice that has been promoted and communicated has been extinction slash total civilizational collapse yeah and that and i am not at all saying that that's not on the table right <laughs> that's <laughs> those are very real possibilities yeah. Um but there are a lot of things that there are a lot of ways that things could go quite wrong that are well short of total civilizational collapse that are well short of human extinction mm-hmm. and that are also well short of climate justice. Yeah. So so here's a way that the human race, you know, the human species if you will could survive. Rich countries could fuel entirely domestic programs of green investment. They could um, participate in global schemes of carbon removal and afforestation um, to, and um, global supply chains around green technology to lower emissions and remove mm-hmm. some emissions through multinational companies and schemes of intellectual property that entirely benefit global North populations. Uh They could use their already amassed wealth and the wealth that they would continue to amass by way of those policies to fund um, an uptick in border militarization and create the, physical infrastructure, the surveillance technology, and the political infrastructure in terms of uh, political outreach to domestic populations, all of which would support um, genocidal border policies and Mm -hmm. large-scale detention and warehousing of people who are displaced by climate events.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And so you would have mass displacement and genocide over the course of decades, um, the remainder of the century, but you would not have either civilizational collapse. You would have big police states and large numbers of failed states, Um, and neither would you have human extinction. Yeah. So I think that is a scenario that is, One that avoids the worst of climate crisis without achieving climate justice. Uh And it is also the scenario that, as far as I can tell from the status quo, is most likely. All the things that I described are happening now. The increased investment in surveillance, border surveillance, tech infrastructure, the development of far-right political parties that are coalescing around xenophobia as a central issue many of whom are uh, viable candidates for office um, yeah. in major global and regional powers mm-hmm. all of this is pol- the political status quo is the it's it's not simply a possibility I think it is the likeliest scenario from here in the absence of comprehensive, climate justice politics that succeeds
0: and I think you know the, the chapter I'm mean, I asked a question I wanted to hear your thoughts on it um, you know obviously to talk about your book uh, for you to talk about your book but I I mean the answer as I said before is in the book you know in terms of, of your response and I I do think it was such an unexpected turn and it really does I think make an argument for the the entanglement of issues that in a really philosophical uh, you know in terms of, of of philosophical thinking you know we're so you know we tend to get obsessed sort of as a discipline with discrete problems yeah. and when you bring this this problem of climate change into the question of reparations there was part of me that was like well no no no, you, you lose the particularity of trying to repair this but then it was as you were saying you know you know the we also need to question the entanglement, or the, the you know what it means to disentangle these things that are so clearly linked. And um, you know, I'm glad you did. I hadn't seen that sort of move done before, so it's a really brilliant part of the book. I have to say,
1: uh, thank you. Um, but I think it. Uh, I think one of the questions it raises, um, along the lines of what you were just saying, are which entanglements do we pay attention to? Exactly. Right. So, you know, if the, you could imagine someone saying, well, what does the idea of climate justice have to do with the idea of racial justice? And there are connections that one could make, um, but, the, but I'm getting off the boat before the question is even asked, right? Because, yeah. you know, because why would that be the standard by which, we decide, you know, whether or not these things have to do with each other in a politically in a politically important way. Right? That's one mm-hmm. way that things might be tied together politically in an important way. Um, but the idea that that exhausts the sort of political connections we should be concerned with, um, I think, is part and parcel of. The thing i was talking about resisting earlier the idea that Mm -hmm. racial justice is about principles it's about the things that people believe primarily and exclusively um and you know if we just are nicer to each other or if we just understand each other in a different way that that will in and of itself irrespective of how the aqueduct of history is reconstructed or not reconstructed that that Mm -hmm. would be what it is to achieve racial justice i think it's you know it's a wrong-headed way of looking at political reality um that we need to challenge and question i think
0: yeah that's great that's super interesting and um I'm going to go from these sort of political end of the world, genocide, border surveillance questions to a disciplinary question, if you don't mind. Sure. (laughs) Always feels a little decadent, you know, after, you know, it's like, you know, the entirety of human existence hangs in the balance. Well, let me ask you about philosophy as a discipline. (laughs) But but hey, you know, it's part of the world too. Right. um, At least for a little while longer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So really, this is a sort of zooming out from the book question, but also trying to take for me, take some lessons about the way the book is constructed and the kind of, of intellectual approach you make in the book, which is to take these questions, which philosophical questions, also obviously activist questions, um, but take these philosophical questions and and entangle them so intensely with the the social and political history of, of in this case, of empire. Right and of 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 capitalism and and um, accumulation, and I wonder then from this this zoomed out perspective, if you think this you know you I mean I think it's part of the question of reparations that you just get so close to to the the history of race and racism in the Atlantic world and beyond. It's inherent in that question, but I wonder if there's a larger message there or imperative there about how we do philosophy right that any anytime we touch on these things about the human person, we ought to be doing we, we ought to be proceeding from an entanglement with histories of empire. Right obviously like I said the question of reparations lends itself to that but as I read and this is something you know that I also as an intellectual um feel you know I have very strong feelings about but I felt like the book was also making the case that you know these questions are part of the history and politics of empire and so all of the all of our philosophical questions need to to take some account of that entanglement, is that going too far, or do you think there's a sort of
1: suggestion that we ought to do philosophy differently? I don't. I don't think it's going too far. You know, what was it that? What was it that Mark said? All all histories, you know, hitherto that of class struggle or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, like, it's the same thought, right? It's just. what are we talking about? That's the basic question. Yeah. If we, if we think that, you know, we're talking about political morality, when we discuss the idea of rights or the idea of particular moral attitudes or something like that, and that has has nothing to do with how the world is actually organized in a concrete Mm way. Um, then we're committed to a particular description of the world. And that description of the world might be false, right? It's the kind of thing Mm -hmm. that could be false. Um, I think it is false. Um, And as you're you're saying, the book is written from a perspective that is at the very least open to the idea that you might need to account for how society is organized in some, you know, Straightforward kind of way, um, or n- not necessarily straightforward kind of way, but in some kind of way, to answer these deep philosophical questions that might facially look to be unrelated. And I, I just think it's true. Uh, I think in our, I think in our time period in the twenty first century, we're talking about the history a particular history of empire. That's what I call global racial empire. It's a particular mm-hmm. constellation of forces that has built this political reality. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were talking about a different time period, we might think about, you know, different constellations of forces, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we need a deep history of Sparta and Athens if we're <laughs> thinking about Plato, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but But yeah, the general thought is, how is society organized politically, economically? That has something to do with the questions that we ask from within those kinds of organization. And, mm-hmm. you know, the deep philosophical thought is a kind of, you know, I have a bias in the direction of holism. Uh-huh. I, I, I. I think it's just true that things are connected. Sometimes we can get away with ignoring the connections or putting the connections aside. Sometimes we can't, but in general, I'm going to lean towards connecting things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to want a reason, you know, someone's going to tell me not to, I'm going to want a reason why.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. I mean, I, I like that shift of, uh, You know, like I was saying, you know, I had my own experience in the climate change uh, chapter where I was like, why is he pressing these two things together? And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Maybe the better question is, why did I push them apart? Mm. Right. And that the the way you said that, like, I want to know why you don't entangle. What's your justification for this disentanglement? I mean, in terms of the history of, of European philosophy. The philosophers themselves didn't think these things were disentangled,
1: right? I mean, right.
0: You know, I'm, I'm not to not to rehearse, uh, you know, that now hopefully becoming more and more familiar sort of tropes, but you know, Kant and Hegel did not think that questions of of colonialism were somehow side projects, right? And so, um, but also the way the way we think and the way you know you know, senses of, of the normal and the typical and so forth, or, you know, as, as you said at the very outset about, about, uh, separating uh, questions of, of justice from the kinds of material struggles, uh, that this aqueduct makes possible and, and reproduces across time. So,
1: right.
0: yeah. And, you know, your book's a great practice of that. That's what I always think is so important is that we find these places of practice, of that kind of thinking, rather than I need you as a philosopher to go read some history. Right. <laughs> now it's like, well, here's a book that does it, and, and it makes the book so fucking different. I mean, it's just not the same when you do that entanglement and do it well.
1: Thanks. I, I, I one more thing to say about this entanglement. A thing that I'm continually struck by. Is um, is how honest the ruling class are about the entanglement, right? Which juxtaposes awkwardly next to the tendencies of, you know, some academics to insist that no, everything is in its little zone, uh-huh. right? The Koch brothers. Have a very broad view of what is politically <laughs> relevant for them. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, now it's critical race theory to suggest that you know slavery has something to do with had something to do with how the world was organized, but The secession document of the state of Mississippi when it joined the Confederacy Mm -hmm. just straight up says slavery is the great material interest of the world. We're (laughs) right. We're, we're fighting to maintain that for us and for the planet. Right. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, you have a set of norms around what we pretend is relevant in really specific zones of academic practice. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you have what the people who actually run the world come out and say and, yeah. and do. <laughs> right? Nobody nobody who has billionaire amounts of money is just investing within the bounds of their particular country because you know, because economies are naturally parceled out. Yeah. You you read the Financial Times, you read CNBC, whatever, you find out a lot about the whole world. Uh-huh. These people are very these people have a very holistic sense of what is required for them to maintain their control on things. Uh-huh. And if you don't believe me, go to one of the workplaces they own and talk to people there about forming a union. Yeah. And then you'll find out how disinterested they are in, in, you know, very granular aspects of social control. You know, these, these, (laughs) (laughs) these things are, these things are linked, you know, a lot of times I, I wrestle with this, I wrestle with these things that you're talking about the kinds of of norms and habits that we've built up in the academy of you know treating different things in different places there's there's a lot to recommend for that but that gets a lot done it lets you work in very specific ways Mm -hmm. you know it's not like there's no reason to pay attention to details and work on specific projects um but i leave I turn the academic brain off and I just look out into the world That I think, oh, actually, no, everyone, you know, everyone who's in a position to actually affect the global structure we live in mm-hmm. takes it as a given that there's a global social structure that we live in. It yeah. spends a lot of time trying to get that social structure to do the thing that they want it to do. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. Um, but nobody, you know, there aren't real politically sophisticated views that don't treat this all as a huge united global social structure Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah you know (laughs) they're always you know that's that's a update of my you know what i said before and i i say all the time about you know you know the history of, of european philosophy is not a history of people who thought they were doing boutique problems right. they actually understood themselves as part of that and so what does it mean for, you know what's the justification for disentangling and so you know the way you put that right at our you know just now puts it right at our at our at our doorstep you know you know as 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 we take the time to reflect and write and read and think through problems and Let me ask maybe as like an even narrower question in in terms of philosophy. One of the things I was thinking as, as after I read your book was how this this idea of quote the philosophy of race, which is a phrase I'm not a huge fan of, but it's just a, a way we talk about about a, a subfield in in the discipline. Um, it's like a quarter century of it sort of gaining a lot of traction, which is, it's the fact that it's only been a quarter century is probably (laughs) not the most inspiring, uh, uh, date because that's just getting into the mid nineties. Um, but I'd started to think about how little that subfield talks about reparations. Mm. And I wondered if one of the things we should take away from your book is that because your book is not just about reparations? It's about how the question of reparations is a part of all these things, whether it's climate justice, uh, distributive justice, um, you know, our, our entanglements with history, and so on. And those questions of racial justice and entanglements with history drives this philosophy of race subfield, right? But it's not talking about reparations. I wonder if you know maybe this is a this is a a, not just an intervention in philosophy of race as a subfield, but also an imperative to sort of change some of that course and say the question of reparations can't be one question among many; it needs to be a part of all of these problems.
1: I I think so, and I hope you know I hope it it starts a conversation around or contributes to a conversation around what that subfield is up to. Um, but that's also something I had in mind when I was writing the introduction to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's there's a lot of at, there's a lot of philosophy worth doing. you know it's it's not as though I don't think anyone should be working on the things that the philosophy of race you know, the the topics that are in the philosophy of race, whether it's metaphysics of race, et cetera, like those are all interesting. Those are all interesting problems. But I, I can't, I have questions about the distribution of attention in the field that seem to me to be explained by the fact that, you know, it's a bunch of people who are marginalized in the field, you know, trying to, get some institutional legitimacy, trying to Uh communicate to what was a very, what was often a very openly hostile audience, like why these things matter, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And, And I think, you know, thank God that people spent 25 years doing that because then I wouldn't, you know, people like me, you know, younger faculty like me wouldn't have been in a position to then kind of say well okay i'm just going to take it as a given that philosophy of race is something worth doing and now Uh here's you know a different you know a different set of a different agenda of Uh of you know here are the topics i'm going to take up which you know there's some overlap with but but are different in some ways right um Mm -hmm. but i think that's that's one of the things that we should be thinking about as a, as a subfield, right? What, from, from the perspective of race, can we do the thing Toni Morrison was telling us to do? Can we, are we now in a position to just ask a bunch of intellectual questions that are important to us, irrespective of whether or not people who work on metaphysics or people who work on epistemology or Uh et cetera, um, see what's important about those issues or agree that they're important or take them to be as important to them as they're important to us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um I I think, I guess that's, that's just a question really at this point, are we in a position as a subfield to now shift course?
0: Yeah. I mean, those are two really interesting aspects of that, that shift, you know, that, you know, at what point, you know, is it not a struggle for legitimacy and, and um, a sort of right to the subfield right right which unfortunately this is what happens working in disciplines as people have to argue for the legitimacy of subfields um it's particularly painful in the case of you know race and gender or sexuality um because it's not just you know it's not just you know a limit a you know mm-hmm. i took I took two courses on that in grad school i never could say the word correctly <laughs> you know it's not just saying like is this a legitimate field and or legitimate sort of approach right and you debate that right it has existential stakes you know right. in these in these other subfields but it's also one of these things because of those stakes it also is this other aspect you're picking up on which is you know and, and the book is i think addresses so powerfully which is you know, how hard it is to to think about philosophy as a discipline, right, and do philosophical thinking in a wide and open way with real material materialist or just material, uh, not the same thing, material or materialist urgency, right, and concern. And not just, you know, as, as you've said here and as you point out in the book, this isn't just like Femi's interests. These are like the human dilemma, right? The right. human situation. And so that that commitment to the material aspects of all of these questions brings with it a, a, a challenge to philosophy. I don't want to say a critique, but a real challenge to what we right. do in philosophy that then is something, of course, that, that uh, a number of subfields deal with at the existential level. Um, after a quarter century, you know, is it time to ask questions without needing to appeal to anyone outside those questions that's really that that you know that's as you said that's a the power of that observation that morrison makes and and that you place at the center of the introduction
1: yeah and it's also it's a microcosm of the larger of the larger point that is part of the constructive view um the idea that we should be trying to get achieve self-determination and figuring mm-hmm. out a distributive system that will make that possible mm-hmm. all right at the end of the day that's a powerful statement of i think what we should want for ourselves right? yeah we should we should want to be in a position to pursue the projects that we find interesting whether it's in academic philosophy or in any other domain of our lives mm-hmm. right? and if we had a social structure that was built and maintained for the for the purposes of making that possible for everyone and not just a select few groups groups of people then mm-hmm. i can't think of a better you know if there's a better way to define justice mm-hmm. i haven't come across it Yeah, and you know that's what the anti-colonial folks were up to in the 60s and 70s yeah. i think they just answered this question
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you about uh readers you know uh you know we write books because we want people to read them. It has its own anxiety that comes with it perhaps yeah. um and you know somebody reads a book and and I mean they take from it what they want at some level, but we also write in order to you know persuade to to urge to Create some sort of fire of some kind. Um, when when you think of of this book and its readers, what do you want the readers to walk away with? And I mean that in terms of like the impact of the book on their sensibilities and concerns. Like, what do you what do you want us as readers to to walk away with?
1: I think if nothing else, if a reader walks away from the book with nothing else other than a material way of looking at the historical problem of racial injustice and the future solution to racial injustice mm-hmm. that's plenty, right so if they come away with a number of examples, a number of arguments, um, that's a cherry on top mm-hmm. but The book is written to just time and time again hammer home. I don't mean that those people were bad and these people were good. Mm -hmm. I do not mean that the legacy of these events is, you know, an assignment of some people to feeling ashamed, and other people to feeling aggrieved. Mm-hmm, I'm not mm-hmm. talking about any of that stuff centrally. Like, mm-hmm. I'm talking about literally the construction of the world that you live in. Not the world those other people live in. Not the world that you know the poor, oppressed people only live in. This world, the one you're in, the one that produced this book, the one that produced the room that you're sitting in. That world. I'm talking about the construction of that. Mm -hmm. And the things that explain the construction of that, the processes that explain why advantages piled up over here, and disadvantages piled up over there, whichever Mm -hmm. one you're in a position to access, those are the same things that are going to explain where they're going to pile up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so if you want them to pile up any differently than they've piled up up until now, that's the thing you're going to have to change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I, you know, if if I think someone who agrees on that perspective and who agrees with the process with the with the project of racial justice, uh-huh. just already, you know, everything else about the view I think just falls out from mm-hmm. there. Um, and I trust people, you know, working together to figure out in ways nobody could possibly anticipate how to put that view into practice mm-hmm. in the various contexts where people are going to have to think through very specific local problems and circumstances.
0: I like that last part. It's, it's you know, what do you want readers to take away is always a little bit of an of a, of an invitation to imperialism, right? <laughs> but I like that, you know, it's like, you know, no, and, and you figure out ways that I couldn't anticipate. That's a good balance. But, um, well, I think the book, is really does does that you know I, I trust I trust the 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 intellect and the writerliness of the book to to have that effect on you know as it gets readers, but you know you're the author, and you know we all know those of us who have written books um there's a difference between the moment when you have the idea for the book and you outline it and then when you finish the manuscript you know the process of of writing and editing and refining is a, a process of rethinking everything. And so I'm curious to sort of turn the question of the reader back to you and ask, you know, you as an author, you know, how do you walk away from this book with different sensibilities and what do you walk toward? Part of that's a question of, you know, next projects, which is always an exhausting question because you have a right to enjoy the moment of your book, right? <laughs> but, um, but you know, we all walk out of books different than we, as different people, than, and intellects, than we walked into the book, and sort of where do you walk out of the book, or how do you walk out of the book, and toward what?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I didn't even walk into the book with the same view of the issue that I walked out of it with. Right? Amazing. When yeah. I start <laughs> when I started writing about reparations, you know, I had an inkling of what dissatisfied me. About other views of reparations, but I didn't think it was. I didn't think of it as connected to the climate crisis. I didn't think mm. of it in this world-making, design-oriented way. It was a process of trying to get all these views together that convinced me of that view, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, researching how people had fought for reparations and what their aspirations had been. Mm-hmm. It was it was engaging with all that that convinced me of the constructive view. So, you know, what, the upshot of the book is itself, you know, the substantive things that the book argues for are themselves one of the things that I'm leaving with because I didn't enter mm-hmm. the project with them. Um, but beyond that, I think partially because of those substantive commitments, I think I'm leaving the book I'm leaving the book project with a real sense of the importance of building things that last. Hmm. And sometimes the things that last are r- like literal things, right? Structures, mm-hmm. bridges, hospitals, etc. Sometimes the things that last are practices. Mm-hmm. Or kind of cultural sensibilities. Um, I think the the yeah. thing that I my previous answer to the question about thinking in material terms about these problems might be a sensibility more than it's anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they are, if you're if you're very lucky, they're changes to the big global aqueduct. Right? Mm-hmm. You get to this. You get to actually turn a pipe off or Mm -hmm. turn one on uh, or divert one Mm -hmm. in a, in a serious way. But thinking for so long at the time scale of centuries just made me think differently about what it is to accomplish something politically. Mm. And there are so many pressures in today's world of clicks and, you know, instant responses, mm-hmm. um, the two-year election cycles. There's so many pulls on our political perspective that try to get us to think on much smaller timescales mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. ones that are actually suitable to thinking about justice on. And that, if nothing else, is the major takeaway for me. Mm-hmm. Like thinking generationally about justice i love that thinking
0: uh thinking with larger senses and stretches of time i mean that's it's really transformative and uh i love the i love the way you put that thank you and thank you for your time i i really love this conversation it's such a great book and uh hearing you talk about it uh it just you know I might even go reread it this
1: weekend. <laughs> so, Thanks so much for having me. This is a really cool conversation.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You take care.
1: You too.